1, and hold your place there. We're going to be looking at that here in just a few minutes. Today we are beginning a series from this Old Testament book of the Bible. And, um, you know, it occurs to me that we haven't spent a lot of time in the Old Testament uh, as a church. I think I've done a couple of very short series that came out of the Old Testament, and we've had some standalone messages that came from the Old Testament, but we haven't spent a lot of time there. And I think there are some things that are helpful for us to keep in mind as we approach the Old Testament in general, and specifically as we approach uh, this Old Testament book of the Bible. Uh, First of all, much of the Old Testament, especially when you're dealing with what's called a historical narrative, which is what 1 Samuel is, uh, something you need to keep in mind is that it emphasizes showing rather than telling. In, In other words, rather than explaining what you ought to believe and why, it simply relays events to you, tells you a story. And except for perhaps occasional explanations, it largely leaves the reader to make their own applications from the story. And 1 Samuel is largely a showing book. Another thing to keep in mind about the Old Testament, especially historical texts like 1 Samuel, is that there are a couple of ways that these texts can be approached. They can be approached primarily for what's called their exemplary value, or they can be an approach for their place in salvation history. In approaching them for their exemplary value, what we do is we consider the characters of the story. They're godly examples, they're ungodly examples, and then we draw out lessons from those examples. Then in approaching uh, books like this for their significance in salvation history, we consider the text in light of their relationship to God's plan for the salvation of mankind, the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think it's safe to say that most preaching that occurs from the Old Testament takes the exemplary value approach to preaching. And for our purposes in this series, we're going to be giving a great deal of emphasis to this approach, the exemplary value, as we look at these stories within 1 Samuel. I'm largely going to organize the series uh, around three key figures in the series. Uh, Samuel, uh, who we'll read about today, we'll read about his birth. Uh, The second will be uh, the first king of Israel, Saul. And then the third will be King David. And we're going to look for both positive and negative examples from their lives uh, that we can learn from and apply to our own lives. But we're occasionally going to note the significance of some of what we read within the context of salvation history, how it moves the story forward to the coming of Christ, how it typifies uh, Christ, uh, how, how it is a type of Christ who would come. So I'm going to try to be faithful to do both of these things, but again, much of our emphasis is going to be on examining the key players and what we can learn from them. There's a lot of background information that we could uh, offer on a study like this. Uh, I'm going to only reference a few things that I think are important for us to know. If you wanted to dig a little deeper, it's a great investment anytime you buy a Bible commentary. 
So I would encourage you to maybe do that if, if you would like to dig a little deeper into this. Uh, some of your study Bibles also have really good commentary that give you background uh, on a book like this. So I would encourage you uh, to read a little uh, deeper. But here are a few things that I think are important for us to know about the background or context of 1 Samuel. Uh, first of all, First and Second Samuel trace God's dealings with Israel from about the 12th century to the early 10th century BC. And the books of First and Second Samuel are primarily devoted to narrating the beginnings of a new Israelite institution, the new Israelite institution of kingship. Uh, Samuel, who we're going to read about today, was raised up by God at the end of a period of Israel's history where they had been led by judges, and he inaugurated the period when Israel was going to be led by kings. And this is a significant development in the history of Israel. They had not previously had a human king. And one of the things that is driven home throughout 1 Samuel is that the human kings of Israel were obligated to live under the authority of God and to rule under the authority of God, under the authority of Yahweh. And they were only approved by God in their leadership as long as they ruled according to his will and not their own. Another thing I think is important to note is that the time of the events of 1 Samuel came right on the heels of the time of the events of the book of Judges. And like Judges, this was a time of great moral apostasy. Everyone did what was right in their own opinion without submitting their thoughts or their actions to God. The nation was morally adrift. The leaders, even the priests, were perverse and the people were wicked. Total disaster was inevitable for these people unless they would turn back to God. And for our purposes, I think that's important background information to have because it lets us know that the circumstances of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel are very similar to our own circumstances. Because we too live in a time when everybody does what is right in their own opinion. We live in a time like theirs where there is a great lack of righteousness. And we need righteous leaders to emerge that will influence others back to living lives that are submitted to God. So one of the things I think we need to uh, consider, one of the questions we need to wrestle with throughout this series... Will you be, will I be one of those people who lead, who show the way in righteous living? We're not going to deal with every chapter and verse in this book and the book that follows it. And we're not going to deal with every story contained within these books. But we are going to spend a good deal of time in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We'll probably be in this series close uh, to half of the year. So let's go ahead and dive into the series uh, by reading today's text, which is 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. I'm going to read that entire section, and if you would follow along with me as I read and pray for me as I pronounce these names. <laughs> there was a certain man from Ramathium, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Toha, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Could I just get a hand, please? All right. Thank you. Thank you. 
I really don't know for sure that I said them right, but it sounded good, so I appreciate the, uh, the hand. Actually, I'm not sure if anybody knows how they're pronounced. I looked them up in the Bible dictionary, and some of them didn't even have the handy little pronunciation helpers. So, whatever those are called. <laughs> he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish. In grief, Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I ask the Lord for him. First, I want to briefly acknowledge two references in this reading that we just went through that might have caught your attention and might tend to nag at your brain a little bit if we don't at least acknowledge them. Verse 2 lets us know that the man who would become Samuel's father, Elkanah, had two wives. It is true that... A number of the biblical figures in the Old Testament had multiple wives. The practice of polygamy was rather common. Uh, Even heroes of the faith, people commended in Hebrews uh, 11, uh, had multiple uh, wives. Abraham, King David, had multiple wives. This is the same David of whom Christ was called the son of David. And for years, I would read these stories and read about polygamy in the Old Testament and didn't think anything of it. 
And I don't know what changed, but one day I was reading and came across one of these texts with multiple wives, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, what is up with that? What's going on here? And I don't want to go into this very much today. I really just want to acknowledge it, but we just need to say that God's intention from the beginning was and is very clear. That marriage would be an institution between one man and one woman committed to each other only for life. The best we can say about polygamy in the Old Testament is that while it seems as though it was tolerated by God, not even being specifically condemned from what I can find, it was never his ideal. And I think it's condemned in a showing rather than a telling sort of way. Because the Old Testament reveals that whenever polygamy was practiced, it resulted in big problems. Big problems. We see them played out in this story. Uh, Our own society doesn't sanction polygamy, but many of the problems that resulted from polygamy also result from multiple marriages. And so we deal with some of these same strains on relationships in our own time. So again, I just want to kind of acknowledge this, not uh, fully respond to it, but just know that polygamy was never God's ideal. It is not God's ideal. It was always less than his best for his people. Another problematic verse that we could spend a whole lot of time on is verse 7, which lets us know that Hannah was barren because, quote, the Lord had closed her womb. Now, some commentators on the Old Testament uh, say that the writer of 1 Samuel only thought that the Lord had closed her womb because at that time they did not have the scientific understanding of reproduction that we do now. But here's what I think. I think we're supposed to take the text to mean what it says. The Lord had closed her womb. Now, this is a hard thing to accept. But accept it, I believe, we, we must. God is sovereign over all the circumstances of our lives. There is nothing outside the realm of God's control. Nothing. Now, we often make a distinction between what God allows and what God actually causes. I think that distinction has value And I embrace that distinction. But here at the Vineyard, we also appreciate that sometimes we have to hold truths in tension. We we can't entirely get them in our limited understanding to, to fit just perfectly. And error comes when in trying to make things fit, we discard one or another truth. Here it is clearly stated that God did not just allow Hannah to be barren, but that God had closed her womb. To people who only want God to give affirmations and blessings, nicer cars and bigger houses and prime parking spaces at the mall, to people who only want God to be a cosmic goody giver, it comes as cold water in the face to think that God would not just allow but actually cause a difficult circumstance. And yet I submit to us today that our theology must allow room for this possibility. 
It is clearly stated here, Hannah was barren because the Lord had closed her womb. How do we accept this? Well, of course, that's the making of 2,000 years of preaching and much debate and searching and asking. It's beyond my ability or really anyone's ability to, to answer this question in a, in a great and complete way, but, but how do we accept it? How can we make peace with this? Here's one thing that I think is helpful to consider. It is by believing that we serve a God who is so powerful and who loves us so much that in and through every circumstance of our lives, he isn't just working for our short-term and temporal good, but he is working for our ultimate eternal good. That's one of the ways that we begin to, to make peace with this kind of thing. This is a huge problem in Hannah's life. She's barren. And the problem of barrenness has led to other problems for Hannah. One of her problems was that while she was barren, Elkanah's other wife, Panina, had children. And it's very likely that the whole reason Panina was Elkanah's other wife is because Hannah couldn't have children. Panina was not considerate or sensitive to Hannah at all. Today, um, you know, when someone struggles with infertility, Michelle and I struggled with that for 11 years. People uh, largely are very sensitive, very considerate, very caring, very cautious, very, very encouraging. This was not the case with Panina. She was not sensitive. Likely because the text suggests to us that Elkanah's true love was Hannah. And so Panina tormented Hannah. She provoked her in order to irritate her, the scripture says. We, we are left to imagine all the different ways that she may have gone about doing this. I'm not going to speculate on that, but I think that most of our imaginations can probably get us pretty close to what the situation might have been. As children were viewed in that time as a blessing from God, Hannah was likely under suspicion for some hidden sin in her life. We are left with the impression that the treatment she received at the hands of Panina was probably quite cruel. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, we're told that she was given no relief there either because Panina did not honor her worship, but instead would provoke her to the point that she wept and could not eat. She tells Eli of her great anguish and grief. It's probably not too far of a stretch to think that she was probably on the verge of or maybe had actually gone all the way into a state of depression. She's barren. She has a rival who is tormenting her. And she has a loving but clueless husband. Anyone ever have one of those? <laughs> I'm... I'm... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going any further. <laughs> Elkanah's approach to comfort her is this. Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, I tried to find some way that culturally that was a really loving thing to say. Uh, a really well, in, you know, just a, a good approach. Um, 
Maybe it's there, but I couldn't find it. I think in any culture, that was just an unfortunate uh, way for him to appeal to her. (laughs) Here's the basic translation. Nothing should be a big enough problem to discourage you when you have me as your husband. (laughs) I've thought this many times myself. (laughs) I'm the gift that overcomes all heartache. Now, I want to say I am not a fan of the male bashing that is so prevalent in our culture. I'm really not. But sometimes we earn our reputation. I think Elkanah was well-intentioned because he is presented as a devout and good man. But I have to believe that even with cultural differences factored in, he was well-intentioned but clueless and in his cluelessness quite insensitive. Hannah is barren. She's tormented by her rival. She is likely borderline depressed or all the way depressed. And her husband is insensitive to her heartache. How does Hannah respond to her desperate situation? Verse 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. In the midst of her heartache, in the midst of torment... In the midst of being antagonized and treated insensitively, perhaps even in a state of depression, in bitterness of soul, in deep emotional anguish, she prayed to the Lord. Talk about exemplary value. Hannah doesn't let her circumstances drive her away from God. She allows her circumstances her pain, her torment to drive her to God. So often, I don't know if you've seen this tendency in your own life, but I've seen it in mine. We have a tendency to allow difficulties in our lives to drive us away from God. Sometimes we allow the troubles of life to become excuses to sin. We lash out in anger. We turn to a favorite sin for a little emotional release. God, if you won't help me with this, maybe alcohol will help me with this. God, if you won't help me with this, flirting with this coworker may help me. We turn to other things. We neglect time with God. We turn away from God and the church. And the list could go on and on and on. But Hannah models a righteous response to difficult trials, she allows them to drive her to God. And here's what she prayed. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used uh, on his head. That's a reference to a Nazarite uh, vow, which I'm not going to go into in a lot of detail here. But she, she makes a vow to God. She promises that if God will answer her prayer and give her a son, then she will give that son back to the Lord all the days of his life. Now here's something that I think many of us struggle with that we need to be careful about. And that is we have to be careful that we not try to manipulate God with empty promises. Anybody ever done that? God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, I'll never sin again as long as I live. 
Well, how long does that last? <laughs> but here's distinctions about Hannah's prayer. It was not an empty promise. She was not attempting to manipulate. She was telling the truth. I found a quote from Matthew Henry, who was a theologian in the 16 and 1700s that I thought was just so helpful here. He wrote this, It is very proper when we are in pursuit of any mercy to bind our own souls with a bond. Important line, Not that we hereby can pretend to merit the gift, but thus we are qualified for it and for the comfort of it. In hope of mercy, let us promise duty. What do we say around here all the time? Jesus is our Savior, and he is our Lord. Hope of mercy, let us promise duty. So in response to her trouble... Hannah turns to God, she prays earnestly, and vows that if God will give her a son, she'll give him back to God all the days of his life. May this be the way that we face trouble in our own lives. May they never lead us away from God, but always to God. And may we always turn to God in earnest prayer and commit to him, even in the hardest times of life, commit to him our allegiance. Verse 19. Early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with his wife Hannah. Fast forward. And the Lord remembered her. That, that was a funny reference. Nobody got it, but it was funny. Yeah, no, okay, okay. All right. So in the course of time, actually, by the way, in the original language, that is a much more graphic reference than that. So just so you know. I imagine you were wondering. Okay, so in the course of time, uh, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Hannah's problem was barrenness. And the solution to her problem was that the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. Now, this doesn't mean that the Lord didn't always know her. Uh, This is just a phrase that simply means that God determined to take action to intervene in her situation. He determined that now was the time to take action, to intervene. The barren woman had a son. Her prayer was answered. Her son was a gift from God. And so Samuel signifies for Hannah the end of her painful experience of sterility. God delivered her from barrenness, from a tormenting rival, from discouragement, and from depression She may have still had a clueless husband. But with the occasion of the birth of Samuel, his insensitivity is lost and swallowed up in the joy of the occasion. Hannah had a problem, and God delivered her. But there's more going on in 1 Samuel than Hannah's problem. The nation of Israel has a problem. And the problem is hinted at, In verse 3, year after year, this man Elkanah went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now, what we find out later, uh, just a little bit later in chapter 2, is that though Hophni and Phinehas were priests, they were wicked 
men. Remember, this was a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. A time when Israel was lacking for righteous leaders. And this included within the priesthood. And it was a tragic situation that Israel lacked for righteous leaders because the population as a whole was very wicked. And there was a desperate need for people that would influence others in a righteous direction. Because of Israel's great wickedness, Judges 3, the, uh, just a little before this, uh, tells us that the Lord was very angry with Israel and that when they went to fight their enemies, this is a frightening line, quote, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. These are the people he loves. His hand was against them to defeat them. If the hand of the Lord is against you to defeat you, you are in a desperate situation. Hannah's problem was physical barrenness. Israel's problem was spiritual barrenness. Everyone did what was right in their own opinion. Hophni and Phinehas, representatives of God, did what was right in their own opinion. Friends, I don't think you can come up with a much better description of our own times than that. I read an article recently, I don't remember all the details of the article, but it was an article about people who were unhappy with the Catholic Church, members of the Catholic Church, who were unhappy with the Catholic Church over some of their positions on social issues. And they gathered together in a big rally, and they protested and chanted, change the church, change the church. Now, I certainly can find a number of things to disagree with the Catholic Church about. But on these particular issues, their positions are right and their positions are godly. But in a culture where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, if the church disagrees, then the church must be changed. If God disagrees, then God's will must be overthrown for the will of the people. Israel's problem was spiritual barrenness. And spiritual barrenness is a problem in the good old U.S. of A. God delivered Hannah from her physical barrenness through the birth of her son Samuel. And God intervenes in Israel's history and begins the deliverance of Israel from national spiritual barrenness also through the birth of Hannah's son Samuel. Because this boy born to Hannah was to become a prophet of God, a judge and a priest who would lead righteously throughout his entire lifetime. And of whom chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. Just as Samuel signifies the end of Hannah's painful sterility, he also signifies the end of Israel's anchorless, leaderless apostasy. So through the birth of Samuel, God delivers Hannah from barrenness. He delivers Israel from national apostasy. But that's not all. Not only does he deliver on the individual and the national levels, but with the birth of Samuel, God begins the transition of Israel to a kingdom. A kingdom upon whose throne King David would eventually sit. 
and from King David would eventually become one called the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the King of the eternal kingdom of God. In this story, God is working on the individual, national, and universal levels, bringing deliverance on all three levels. Here's a cool thought, I think, for you, for me. Throughout all of history, God has been working for your salvation. Throughout all of history. God's been putting the pieces in together, together, moving this person and that person and putting down nations and raising up nations. And it's all for the purpose of your salvation and the salvation of the world. God delivers Hannah from barrenness. He delivers Israel from apostasy. And he ultimately delivers the whole world from the wages of sin. Now, let me make just a couple of uh, quick observations from our reading today about how God delivers. First of all, God delivers through the normal circumstances of everyday life. I think there's a better way that I can say that. Maybe it's this. It, God is working at bringing deliverance even when we can't tell that he's doing it. Now, that's what I'm trying to say. Even when we can't tell what he's up to. He's still at work. Hannah is barren. She is antagonized by her rival. She is appealed to insensitively by her husband. She is even questioned about her manner of prayer by the priest. This is difficult stuff. And here's what you need to know in the midst of all of this. Hannah doesn't know the end of the story. Hannah doesn't know she's about to have a child. For all she knows, she will never have a child. Circumstances are hard. She cannot know if they are ever going to change. But God is at work in her difficult circumstance to bring deliverance to her, but not only to her, but to her nation, and ultimately is at work in her story to reconcile all things to himself, every man, woman, boy, and girl, and ultimately all of creation. Your situation may appear bleak right now, but God has not forgotten you. God is at work in your situation. You can't see all that he's up to, but he is working for your eternal, your ultimate good. The second thing is that God delivers through people who feel inadequate. Think of how Hannah felt. She felt less than Panina. She probably felt embarrassment. She didn't measure up. Something was wrong with her. But in her inadequacy, she cried out to God, and God used her to birth a prophet who would lead a nation righteously. You realize that if you feel inadequate, you have met one of the most important qualifications for God using you. Moses felt inadequate, Gideon felt inadequate. Paul felt unworthy. The list could go on and on and on. God uses people who feel and who actually are inadequate 
to bring deliverance. Don't let the feeling of inadequacy stop you. God is calling you to do something for him. Don't let it stop you. It's not about your adequacy. It's about God's adequacy. I wrestled with this for years when I contemplated becoming a pastor. I don't feel adequate. Finally, I had a friend that kind of slapped me around and said, you're not. But it doesn't matter because he is. Don't let the feeling of inadequacy stop you. Here's an important one. God delivers in response to earnest prayer. You know, we rightly are very careful about not trying to offer formulas for getting answers to prayer. There are no formulas. But I do believe that if you look throughout the scripture, you see that there is something in the heart of God that responds to earnest prayer. Notice the type of prayer Hannah prayed. She wept much and prayed. We're told that the priest Eli observed her praying. Her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. This is desperate, earnest prayer. The Bible over and over again makes the point that God hears, God is attentive to those who cry out to him in great distress. The book of Exodus tells us of the Israelites who cried out to God as a result of their slavery. And it says of God, he heard their groaning. He heard their groaning. Romans 8.26 tells us that the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. God understands the language of groaning. He hears us in our distress. He delivers in response to earnest prayer. If your problem has driven you to groaning prayer, God hears you. He is attentive to you. And the final observation I want to make today is that God delivers through the birth of a child. Right on cue. (laughs) All through the Bible, we see the birth of a child being the answer to hopelessness and desperation. Isaac's birth was the answer to Abraham and Sarah's barrenness. Moses' birth initiated the deliverance from Egyptian slavery. The birth of Samson marked the beginning of deliverance from the Philistines. The birth of Samuel that we've talked about here today marked the beginning of a new day in Israel, deliverance from apostate leadership. And friends, all of these point to something greater. The birth of Christ in Bethlehem's manger. The one that everything in the Old Testament points toward. The coming of the ultimate deliverer, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, our Savior King. 
He is the king of the eternal kingdom of God. God delivers through the birth of a child, Jesus, Savior, King, and God. The book of 1 Samuel is a book about righteous people. Hannah, Samuel, David, we're going to learn from their lives. It's a book about unrighteous people like Saul, and we'll learn from their lives. But through all the stories in these two books, what we see over and over again is that we serve a God who loves and delivers his people. And God is still, in 2014, a delivering God. He is working for your good through all the circumstances of your life, even the worst circumstances of your life. He has delivered you from the wages of sin. He's at work for your ultimate eternal good, even when everything about your life seems difficult. Why don't you stand